Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. And in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to follow on from the earlier episode we did talking about GHB to focus a bit more on GHB withdrawal management. Now, Fergal, we, we touched on um, GHB withdrawal timing and how rapid someone can, can go into GHB withdrawal. Could you uh, expand a bit more on the timeframes we should be concerned about with, with GHB withdrawal and, and what that can sometimes look like? Sure. So before I do that, I just want to emphasize the point that if you, you I worry about GHB withdrawal because it's one of the more severe hypnosedative withdrawal phenomena. And I particularly worry about uh, withdrawal or the risk of withdrawal in people who have consumed more than 20 mils a day who have to consume at night or have to use three or four times in the day. So in terms of the timing, I compare it to alcohol. It starts earlier than alcohol. It's more severe than alcohol and lasts longer than alcohol. So it can actually start within half an hour of stopping a, stopping use. And it can stretch out all the way up to two weeks. And during the time, during the first 48 to 72 hours, it can be very, very severe. So in terms of what does it actually look like? Well, I mean, you know, we, we all know what alcohol withdrawal looks like. So I characterize these, the GHB withdrawal, basically a significant, profound, autonomic uh, hyperarousal, profound uh, perceptual disturbances, and also the risk of rhabdomyolysis and various other organ derangements. So, you know, it, it, you can get very sick very quickly. Absolutely. And I guess it, talking about withdrawal presentation, uh, you mm. mentioned um, uh, rhabdomyolysis and, and seizures, which can be neuromuscular uh, presentation yeah. symptoms as well of GHB. But yeah. I think we should also touch on some of the other um, phenomena, such as the psychiatric phenomena. So sometimes people can mm. present in delirium, hallucinating, yeah. and sometimes in a frank psychosis. And yeah. um, you mentioned it can sometimes be somewhat similar to, to an alcohol withdrawal. And especially, we do need to emphasize the autonomic hyperarousal syndrome as well that can, that can yeah. be present in yeah. GHB withdrawal. So we're talking about temperature instability, tachycardia, um, mm. increased respiratory rate, uh, sweating, tremor. So it, it, it yeah. is, I think, <laughs> um, the term um, an alcohol withdrawal on, on steroids is probably, is probably apt yeah. because this is... Uh, a very, very dangerous withdrawal symptom. And if it's not treated with the respect it deserves, it can certainly cause people problems. And uh, I'm sure like me, Phil, I've seen patients go to ICU with GHB withdrawal because yeah. they're so floridly unwell. W would you agree yeah. with that? Uh, look, I mean, the first ever case that I ever saw of GHB withdrawal was actually in the UK, right? And it was a gentleman who, who, who was of, he was a gypsy and he, he worked in, um, he traveled around in uh, carnivals. And he had, he had alcoholic cardiomyopathy, but he was also in GHB withdrawal. So he was tachycardic on top of alcoholic cardiomyopathy, which is severe heart failure. And he hadn't been taking his beta blockers for, for, for weeks. So, I mean, you know, that is perhaps the sickest patient that didn't, that, that didn't end up in intensive care that I've ever seen in GHB withdrawal. And the way we actually manage that is slightly different in the UK compared to Australia. But in the UK, uh, they take the view that the maximum dose of diazepam is 240 milligrams in 24 hours. He reached 240 milligrams, was still walking around uh, thinking that he was working on a, on a carnival store, 
So he was then given a bucket load of olanzapine, and then he was given a bucket load of um, baclofen. And, and at, at that point, he began to settle down. But oh, the, the, as an introduction to the, the potential severity for GHB withdrawal, I, I, I was given a baptism of fire, and especially for someone with that kind of heart failure comorbidity. And I remember, I can remember one of the nurses saying to me, "What do we do about his beta blockers?" And I said, "What beta blockers? Why is he on beta blockers?" Oh, he got heart failure, and my jaw dropped. And I said, he's already tachycardic, and now, he's, now we know he's got heart failure. You know, this is a high-risk individual. And this was in a psych unit that did not have a direct route to a basically a, a secondary care hospital and an intensive care unit. I, it was the riskiest thing I've ever done, I reckon. <laughs> now, you've mentioned diazepam, and diazepam is the, yeah. the hallmark of um, GHB withdrawal management. Uh yeah. And usually we use diazepam because it, it is one of those benzodiazepines that has a really long half-life. Could you explain yeah. the rationale for, for why we use um, diazepam in, in GHB withdrawal? Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting to, to actually, if we can go through the pharmacology of the, of the four key drugs that we use for GHB withdrawal, right? So we, we remember hypnosedative withdrawal requires sedation, all right? And perceptual disturbance requires antipsychotic medication, right? Now, before I go on to the other hypnosedatives, it's really important to understand that you don't give antipsychotics for perceptual disturbances in hypnosedative withdrawal until you have adequately preloaded with adequate amounts of diazepam. So if we look at diazepam, just let's just remind ourselves that diazepam is a positive allosteric modulator of the GABA-A receptor, right? So what does that mean? It means that there has to be GABA at present at the receptor before benzodiazepines will actually work. Okay? So they don't in and of themselves activate the chloride channel. There has to be GABA present as well. Now, activation of the chloride channel in the presence of benzodiazepines occurs by increasing the frequency of chloride channel opening. And if you increase the frequency of opening, functionally you increase the amount of chloride getting through, therefore, that's how the that's how you, oh, that's how the inhibitory effect of benzos is exerted. It's, it's there's more chloride intracellularly, therefore, the the cell becomes hyperpolarized. So we use benzodiazepines, but we've also used, we also can use various other drugs as as perhaps third line agents. But I, I think it's important to to do the stepwise progression. Benzodiazepines first. How much of a benzodiazepine do you use before you start thinking of second-line drugs? It really depends on where you are and what centre you're at. And unfortunately, with GHB, there are some rough markers and guides, but there's no clear consensus as there is, say, with with alcohol. So, for example, Mm. in in the centre that I work at, uh, we, we would probably use 100 to 120 milligrams of diazepam but we also will use yeah. other medications and we'll talk about these a bit later on in the episode yeah. but we would use those as as almost pre-medications based on how much ghb uh the patient's using yeah. and in particular i'm talking about baclofen which works preferentially on gaba b receptors um as again mm-hmm. as, as an agonist and to help with that kind of um that gaba effect that we were talking about earlier but we would use uh, baclofen mainly for high-dose um, GHB usage, and we define that around 40 mils a day. And mm. we would use 10 milligrams three times a day. 
not all withdrawal centers and not all facilities will use baclofen, but we would use that as a prodrug and then you, we find that it actually helps decrease the amount of diazepam people will need during their withdrawal yeah. management and also helps with that autonomic hyperactivity and also patient agitation and also can help with that um, muscle spasming. And we talked about rhabdomyolysis as well. Mm. There are some reports that baclofen might help with decreasing levels of that, though I haven't seen convincing evidence with regards to that. But has that been your experience with, with baclofen, Fergal? Yeah, it's, it's, as you say, every unit's different. So I, I have a slightly different way of doing it. So for me, we front load with diazepam. So we just say, as soon as we identify GHB withdrawal, we give 20, 20, 20 diazepam. So that's 60 over, over, you know, six hours. And then we use, uh, we use diazepam. And unfortunately, we use it according to the CWA scale, even though the CWA scale is not used for, shouldn't be used for anything other than alcohol. We do. It's actually quite useful to elucidate the um, the signs of autonomic hyperarousal. So we 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 push up the dose of diazepam according to uh, the CWA scale. Now, I mean, 120 milligrams is our official cutoff point. I I have gone to 150, but you know, in the UK, their the, their policy was 240 milligrams. So we know that we know that baclofen is a is an agonist of the GABA B receptor. And remember. GHB is, a, is an agonist at the GABA A and a partial agonist at GABA B. So therefore, when you're in withdrawal, you need to shut down both the GABA A and the GABA B receptors. So shutting down the GABA A receptor is achieved by giving a large amount of benzodiazepines and shutting down the GABA B receptors. Uh, the, sorry, the, the withdrawal manifestations uh, associated with that receptor in GABA B is, is done by the use of baclofen. So that's why the two drugs in combination are very useful. Now, when you actually introduce the baclofen, well, that's that's a moot point, and I think there's a significant variability. So what you're saying is you introduce it early. I would tend not to introduce it immediately. I would tend to go at least to, uh, you know, 60 milligrams of diazepam before I would think about um, baclofen. But there is a third drug. There is a third drug, and it's a drug that I've... I've heard in the textbooks, I haven't seen it being used currently, but it's phenobarbital or, or the barbiturates. Um, mm. could you, have you had any ex- clinical experience with, with this at all? So I've seen one patient uh, getting a thiopentone infusion. Uh, and that, That's basically under the care of intensive care. And they were basically anesthetized. And so this was a patient who, was at, who had severe uh, GHB withdrawal. And they were, they, I think they were on about, uh, up to about 200 milligrams of diazepam. They were on like 60 milligrams of baclofen and they were still, they were in intensive care, but they were still hyper-aroused. They weren't settled. And so they, we, we gave them a thiopentone infusion, which is a barbiturate that's used to, as an anesthetic induction agent. Now, the, the rationale for using a barbiturate in combination with a, Benzodiazepine is very interesting. So remember I said to you that benzodiazepines are positive allosteroid modulators of the GABA-A receptor. Barbiturates are just full agonists of the GABA-A receptor. And what does that mean? It means that when when a barbiturate lands on the GABA-A receptor, it will activate that receptor. It does not require the presence of additional GABA in the same way that benzos do it. So that's why it will auto, you know, 
that's why it's so dangerous. And that's why in the, in the 50s and 60s, when people were overdosing on, benzo, on barbiturates, we all thought that benzodiazepines were much safer because you, it was much more difficult to overdose. Because remember, benzos are, par- are, are positive allosteric modulators, not in themselves full agonists. So that's point number one. So a barbiturate is a full agonist of the GABA-A receptor. It also works slightly differently. So I said that benzodiazepines increase the frequency of opening of the chloride channel, whereas barbiturates increase the duration of opening of the chloride channel. So they act synergistically on the chloride channel to really cause a massive chloride influx and hyperpolarization of neurons. So we see in GHB withdrawal, we see a combination of drugs which are used physiologically to actually synergistically act because we see that we use benzos to to shut shut down the hyperarousal associated with withdrawal at the GABA-A receptor. We use baclofen uh, similarly to kind of calm down the GABA-B receptor and then we go back to barbiturates which increased the duration of action of, which increased the duration of opening of the chloride channel again back at the GABA-A receptor. So we're using a group of drugs specifically designed to shut down, or sorry, to cause hyperpolarization due to activation of both the GABA-A and the GABA-B receptor. Absolutely. And I guess we've summarized three drugs here. We've talked about diazepam, phenobarbital, and baclofen. And also, I guess, for, for dosing regimens, especially for diazepam, I, I use the alcohol withdrawal scales uh, that you mentioned, not as a guide to how much diazepam is, is required, but probably more as a guide to, to effect and how well the withdrawal is being managed. But mm. I have another question for you, Fergal, which is, what's your view on outpatient management of GHB withdrawal. <laughs> uh, have you been have you been game to to manage uh, patients in a non-residential setting for, for GHB withdrawal? So that's a very interesting question. Now you know we've we've spent the last uh, 10-15 minutes talking about how awful GHB withdrawal is and in our previous episode we really did hammer home the message that GHB withdrawal is just terrible, high risk and terrible. It's important to acknowledge, however, that GHB withdrawal is a continuum, as is GHB misuse and dependency. There is a continuum. And clouding that continuum, or clouding the issue further, we have to acknowledge that GHB is very much a very a teenage, adolescent, young adult drug. And you really tend not to get significant uh, GHB withdrawal in teenagers, adolescents, and if you're under 20, and I'm not sure exactly what the cutoff age, but for me, if you're under 20, you're highly unlikely to experience a significant autonomic hyperarousal or a significant hypnosedative withdrawal when you're coming off GHB, irrespective of how much you've used. So these are the things, these are the issues that cloud the, 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 the issue when we think about community detox. So I am aware that in certain settings, in certain community settings, and particularly in forensic settings, in juvenile forensic settings, young kids come off massive amounts of GHB withdrawal with zero uh, medical supervision, with zero diazepam, and they're, they're fine. They're, you know, they, they have no problems with it. And yet, you know, on the, on the other end of the continuum, we have, you know, 30-year-old gentlemen with, who are on 40 mils of GHB a day who need intensive care. You know, I, 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 I personally am very cautious about community withdrawal. I don't like doing it. In fact, I don't ever want to do it, but I am aware that it is done. What's your view? 
My view would probably be slightly different in that I'm probably uh, more concerned on dose and how frequently the patient's using it, especially if someone's using it overnight or getting up to around 30 mils, uh, certainly probably above 20 mils a day. I'm yeah. a bit more nervous about um, a, a home-based um, withdrawal. Short of that, where they've got minor features, minor withdrawal symptoms, I, I definitely don't think people need to come to a residential facility for that. But when people are, are struggling or, or especially charging up throughout the night and, and struggling um, to um, uh, manage their withdrawal symptoms or even having problematic um, overdoses as well, I tend to err towards the, the residential uh Option and also, if I'm considering baclofen, <laughs> by definition, that that is definitely a residential. Uh, that's, yeah, that's definitely yeah. a residential um, uh, admission. Uh, what yeah, there is there is no there is no way that you would use more than one drug. Um, in fact, just the thought of that just sends shivers down my spine. Imagine someone saying, "Oh, I had to use diazepam and baclofen," and someone who was monitored in the community that would just send me that would cause me heart failure. Um, yeah, look, thinking about it, I, I, I personally would not choose ever to get involved in the management of a GHP withdrawal in the community. Uh, for me, it's, it's just too risky. Maybe you're braver than I am. I don't know about that, but <laughs> it, it really does depend on um, the dose and the symptoms as well for the patient. Uh, so I do have a low threshold for a residential um, admission, but... Also, I think, as, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, it's also dependent on where the patient's at. The first thing is safety. If I feel I can safely manage someone in the community, as in they're not by themselves, they have someone there, they have someone who can supervise medication, they've got access to a phone, they've got access to healthcare support, they're in relatively good health, um, pretty much all the criteria we would use for a home-based alcohol withdrawal, and I do not feel that they're at risk of significant compromise and they're not using a large amount of GHB, then I would consider it with the with all those safeguards in place. But if I could not even meet one of those, um, again, super low threshold for a residential admission. Yeah. So on the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've covered a lot in terms of GHB withdrawal. We've talked about the, the drugs that we commonly use for, for GHB withdrawal. And we've also talked about the potential option of uh, outpatient withdrawal for suitable selected patients. So thanks for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now.